A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to Justice. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this series of Justice, we will explore the experiences of mothers in the justice system, from women who enter prison pregnant and give birth inside, to those who are separated from their children for imprisonment and involvement from social services. Each episode, I'll be speaking to expert guests and exploring what needs to change. In this episode of Justice, we explore what rights mothers in the justice system have. I speak to Kate Lill, women prisoners caseworker at the Prisoners Advice Service, whose role involves providing free legal advice to women in prison, making sure they can assert their legal rights in relation to their children. I'm Kate Lill. I'm the Women Prisoners Caseworker at the Prisoners Advice Service. We're a legal charity that provide free legal advice and representation to adults in prison in England and Wales. We do that in a number of ways. We run advice clinics in prisons. They have thankfully restarted um, after COVID. We have a letters clinic where prisoners can write to us and we respond with um, written advice. And we also have a telephone advice line open three days a week, which prisoners can can call us on for advice. A lot of our work is one-off advice to individual prisoners, but for some prisoners we do take on cases um, that might be parole representation or it could be judicial reviews and things like that. Um, we have a number of different caseworkers at PAS and we each specialise in a different area um, just to ensure that we have you know, somebody internally who is really sort of expert at the needs of certain cohorts within the prison system. So I'm the women prisoners caseworker and I provide all of the um, legal advice and representation to, to women in prison. Okay, so when it comes to women in prison and sort of particularly mothers, am I correct in thinking women should be able to assert their legal rights in prison as a mother? Yes, you're completely right. You don't lose your rights as a mother when you go to prison, whether you um, are pregnant or if you already have children um, on going to prison. You still retain parental responsibility for your kids as a mother and you do so unless they are adopted. So you still have the same rights over your child when you are in custody. The difficulties you have are that you are, generally speaking, separated, which makes it more difficult normally for you to assert those rights. Right, exactly. And that's the rub, isn't it, I guess? And you can sort of explain more about this and potentially women you've you've worked with in the sense that, yes, on paper, they they have the same rights, but actually in reality... I imagine that's not the case and that's certainly not yeah, my understanding of it. You're absolutely right. In reality, it, it's not the case. 
anecdotally, I've had some cases where actually we have women who have been told by their children's social workers that they no longer have parental responsibility or don't have any rights um, now that they are in prison. So it's actually something that even those who should know exactly how the system works don't seem to, to, to know about. So how you're uh, a woman themselves is expected to know that they have those rights and have a way of asserting them. I don't know. <laughs> So with your work, what does a sort of typical day look like if if there is one? What sort of things will you be dealing with on a day-to-day basis? So Monday and Wednesday, I'm normally on the advice line uh, for one of our sessions, which is a morning or an afternoon. And anyone can call that. So I do actually speak to male prisoners on the advice line. Tuesday morning, we run a free phone advice line just for women in prison um, from 10 to 12.30. And that's really popular, actually. Uh, We introduced that um, during COVID because we weren't able to go into prisons and um, provide outreach, something that we find women really uh, respond to well. They like to see somebody face to face. They feel the need to be, be able to build that rapport with somebody, to be able to trust them, to sort of actually feel that they can be open and honest with you to get the advice that they need. And so we uh, replaced the outreach with a free phone so that women could call us instead um, because we found that a lot of women were using their credit to call their children and therefore didn't have any credit left to call PAS. So uh, we introduced that um, during the the, the pandemic and we've continued it because it is actually a really um, useful tool for women to access um, free advice. So essentially Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I will have some sort of telephone advice going on and the rest of the day I will be spending um, doing casework. So on both prison law cases and family law cases, because um, as the women's prisoner caseworker, I provide both family law and prison law advice, which is different to the rest of the caseworkers at PAS. We introduced that in about 2016-17. It was a joint project with the rights of women who trained um, me in uh, being able to provide that advice because we noticed that there was a gap um, in women's ability to access free family advice. The reason for that is because legal aid, well, in all areas, as we know, of social social justice, they've been severely um, limited. But that's also happened to family matters as well. Um, And so if you're dealing with a private family issue, say, say, child is living with father and you are in prison, the likelihood is you won't be able to access legal advice free of charge because legal aid won't be available. It's only available for women, unfortunately, who can um, prove in very, very restrictive ways um, that they have been the victim of domestic abuse or if the child is at risk, essentially. So most private family law matters fall out of the scope of legal aid, meaning that women don't have access to that. Care proceedings are still covered by legal aid, but a lot of women in prison have got past that point. Um, A child is already in care all their issue is a private matter and they're they're scrambling to try and find somebody who might be able to help them. So my casework now is both prison law and family law and I pick up that work through women calling the advice line or them writing to us or them coming to see me at a clinic and saying I've got this problem can you please help me. So aside from casework I do also respond to general letters from from women, providing them with advice. But we also work on resources that can be helpful for for prisoners. And we try also to disseminate information and work with others 
to try and help prisoners, but also, you know, in particular, from my point of view, women to understand their rights and therefore sort of disseminate it through to others. Yeah. So what would you say is the bulk of the challenges, you know, or sort of the women calling you on the advice line? What are the main things that you're picking up? For women, a lot of women, as I'm sure you know, are serving short sentences or certainly not long sentences. For low risk, Um, nonviolent crimes. Exactly, exactly. Um, You do obviously have the small minority who are in for longer periods of time, but generally speaking, women are not. And so they are generally women who are not considered to be high risk and therefore should at some point in their sentence be able to progress to less secure conditions to go to an open prison um, and be able to access things like release on temporary license, which is when you're able to leave the prison for the day or sometimes even overnight, either to go to work or to spend uh, time with your children. Um, So I get a lot of women coming to see me with legal queries about categorisation. Can they move to open conditions? How do they challenge it if they have been refused? A lot of women asking for advice on release on temporary license. They call it rottle for short. Women in particular are interested in that because there is a type of rottle called childcare resettlement license. And that is available for um, a primary carer who's come to prison to enable them essentially to spend time in the family home with the children, trying to reintegrate and prepare for when they're released from prison. It is available to men, but it is predominantly used by women because they tend to be the primary carers of a a child before coming into custody. So I have lots of women who are seeking help with that, particularly because you can actually get childcare resettlement license, CRL, at any point in your sentence. And lots of prisons, we find, either don't seem to know this, which is quite concerning, or in practice, aren't willing to offer it to women earlier on in their sentence. The main defence they put forward is, well, it's going to undermine public confidence in the criminal justice system if someone's just come to prison and they're then seen to be going on a jolly for the weekend with their kids. Um, It's not like that. But um, I think the problem we have at the moment is that the current government, in particular the, the current Secretary of State for Justice, is very concerned um, about public opinion and uh, how the public perceive um, prisoners to be um, treated and how they seem to have a cushy life and a wonderful time. Um, So it's cracking down quite hard. So it is often an uphill struggle for women to be able to access um, things that they are entitled to. Obviously, um, it's all risk assessed. And there are some women who aren't eligible for it because, say, they are high risk and therefore um, in the restricted category of rottle. But a lot of them are. And so I help them sort of convince the prison using legal levers to allow them to access that, that, that release. I get a lot of family queries, not just about family law, but um, how women can communicate with their kids from the prison side of it, because the prison themselves often have restrictions in place in relation to contact with those outside. So it might not be a family law issue, it might be a prison law issue, but it is still to do with contact with their kids. I get a lot of requests for advice on parole. Now that we have more sentences that require early release by the parole board, we're getting obviously more cases under legal aid for 
parole reviews, recall where individuals are released on any sentence and are then recalled from um, their licence for allegedly breaching their licence. So it's a vast array of different sort of issues, but, but more often than not with women, it is often something to do with their kids or their family. I imagine you're most of the time having conversations about, as you say, the children, but that sort of worry of what's going to happen to my children. And of course, you know, people will say, well, that doesn't happen anymore, Edwina. I get that a lot in my career. And I'm particularly (laughs) talking about when a woman is told that her children are going to be adopted out of their care. Do you come across that? I, I wouldn't say I've come across that a lot, but I've certainly heard more than two women say that that has happened to them. I wouldn't say the same as you, that it, I come across it a lot, but you do find individual cases where you have the real extremes. A lot of women come into prison not knowing what's going to happen to their kids. A lot of women are too worried about children's services becoming involved um, if they go to prison, that they don't mention it to um, their solicitors, their barristers, the court, despite the fact that the court actually has an obligation to consider the Article 8 rights, so the right to private and family life of a child. And so the court should be looking at, I have a mother in front of me, is it appropriate for this mother to be sent to custody, considering what's in the best interests of the child. So lots of mothers don't actually disclose this information because they're concerned that children's services are going to get involved, they're going to take my kids away and they're going to put them up for adoption. That might not happen in practice, but it is a genuine concern for women because they are so worried and so anxious about what's going to happen to their kids. Often when I get involved, you know, when I get to the point of seeing a woman, Care proceedings have probably already taken place. Sometimes placement proceedings have already taken place and then they do move on to adoption proceedings. But ultimately, if a woman is serving a short sentence in custody and she isn't considered to pose a significant risk of harm to her child, a child shouldn't really be being taken away permanently doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. And as I said previously, women find it much more difficult to assert their rights from in prison, making it easier for those types of things to happen. I also think that women don't know of their rights. They're not informed when they come into custody that they should be entitled to X, Y and Z and this is what should happen. There is more focus on it since the um, we had two awful deaths of two babies who died in custody sort of just pre-COVID and the prison system has supposedly sort of re-evaluated, reassessed how they work with women who are pregnant and mothers in custody and they have produced a new sort of all singing or dancing policy framework on what we should do. And this is all wonderful. And we're going to provide women with the best um, care and treatment that they can get. Um, but ultimately, whether that happens in practice is another thing. It, it says it on paper, but in reality, it's not necessarily the case. Um, so I don't believe that women are informed of all of their rights when they come into custody at all. And actually, sometimes they can be given, not necessarily through somebody trying to deliberately mislead them, but can be given really unhelpful advice or information, which 
um, informs their decision-making process and results in them having a negative outcome. If you don't mind, I'd like to give you a, a sort of an example of that. I had a woman who called our advice line very recently never been in trouble with the police before. Um, it was a non-violent financial offence. And she was told by her solicitor that she wouldn't be going to prison. She had a two-month-old baby who she was breastfeeding. And on the day of sentencing, she received over four years in custody. Uh, baby went to live with her mum, which um, the sort of the immediate care of, of child then was obviously taken care of. They're a close-knit family. It worked well. Um, she also had two older children who were the child's siblings who obviously could provide support. She was informed at the prison that she went to that, oh, you don't need to apply for mother and baby unit. Um, what would be better for you is, is for you to get to an open prison where you can get released on temporary licence and then you can go home and you can see all of your children together. You're low risk, you'll get open conditions really quickly. So, so that's what is, you know, which is something that would probably be best for you and your and your kids. She wasn't told that actually she could apply for a mother and baby unit and go to mother and baby unit and still get rottle if made an open prisoner because all female prisons are resettlement prisons and can provide release on temporary license from them. So she could say, for example, have gone to Bronzefield's MBU and still got rottle to go home to see her other kids. But she wasn't told that. She wasn't told well, actually, maybe you should get some legal advice on this. Why don't you call Paz? She was told something that at the time sounded great, but has ultimately ended up with the separation of her and her child. She didn't apply for the MBE. She was recategorised to open, moved to an open prison, has recently been recategorised back to closed. We're trying to establish why has been moved to a closed prison. So now she doesn't have her baby with her and doesn't have any access to her other kids either. And if she hadn't have had that advice, she may have been on an MBE with her baby, still breastfeeding and working towards getting open back so she then could see her other kids. Her oldest child is 15 and she's never been away from her. And this is really taking its toll. So it's not just a case of, the small little one, not having those really important early months and years of bonding with mum, but it's actually the damage it's causing to the really established loving relationships with other children as well. Yeah, I mean, um, this goes back to the sentencing as well, though, doesn't it? Because four years for a, um, a non-violent sort of low risk, uh, you know, and yes, you can always, I can always hear that voice sort of saying, but she's committed a crime. Yes, um, potentially, I don't know the details of the case at all, of course, and she should be punished. But this is where we should have a functioning community justice system where if women have been convicted for a low risk, nonviolent crime, they can serve out their licence on a community sentence and still have access to their children. So you're not obliterating three little lives. And I wonder why she didn't. I mean, obviously, I, I imagine you weren't in the court when sentencing was passed and you probably don't know what was going on in the judge's mind at the time either, or the magistrate it would have been, wouldn't it? 
No, it, it, it no, it was it was quite a it was quite a big case. It was in the Crown Court, um, and the magistrates' court don't have um, those sentencing powers. Um, I, I I don't know, obviously, but it does go it, it does go back to sentencing. Um, you know, we've had some really wonderful work completed by. Um, number of academics, Shona Minson in particular, working with the judiciary to inform them of the real implications of um, sending a mum mother to prison, you know, what the implications are, um, and actually informing them of the rights of the child and what really should be taking place. But it doesn't seem to be trickling through. So despite the training having taken place, it doesn't seem to be actually bearing out in, in reality. And I so frequently have a woman visit me um, at a clinic or call up and say, my solicitor told me I wouldn't be going to prison. You know, so there is also an element there of whether practitioners are equipped enough in working with mothers, whether there needs to be more training in relation to that. We have specific training for practitioners who are working with children, ones who are representing vulnerable adults, there potentially is an argument for actually having specialist training for something like this, because as you say, you're not only ruining that woman's life, you're then potentially ruining the children's lives too. And we all know that there are adverse consequences for children who have parents in custody, particularly mothers, and what that means for the, their development and what happens to them in later life. So it, it it really, I think there needs to be a holistic approach in what we do. You know, people representing them at the first instance need to be really aware of what factors they should be putting before the court. The court need to be aware of what factors they need to consider and the implications of what they do. And then we need to have a system in general that just says we don't send people to prison particularly women, particularly mothers, for such low-level offending, particularly when the consequences of doing that could cause so much harm. You know, we're still sending pregnant women to prison. Why are we doing that? It's, it's and pregnant insane. women sending them to prison on remand, uh, whereupon, you know, so you mentioned the death of a baby. Um, they were It was Bronzefield Prison, wasn't it, in style? And um, the poor girl and I say girl because she just turned 18 and she was a care leaver and she was on remand in Bronzefield wasn't she and she had her baby um it was dead and she was then found not guilty so she didn't have to be in prison she didn't have to be in prison and her baby would potentially have been alive still because she would have had the care in the community that she could have accessed instead Instead of being stuck in a cell where she was pressing her bell and either no one was answering it or they were just switching it off. Yeah. And this is what really irritates me because, you know, none of us are trying to say violent, high risk women should be treated out in the community and just sort of wandering around. You know, actually what we're all fighting for, if I'm correct, um, is the fact that just a bit of sense needs to come back, actually. And we need to deal with this particular dysfunction where it's not good for the prison, it's not good for the prison staff, it's not good for the taxpayer, it's not good for the woman, her children, her family. And actually, there is a reason why we have community sentences. It's for them to be able to be used, <laughs> particularly for this cohort of women. So why are they not being used? 
You know, it's maddening. Exactly. And I think the other thing with that as well is that community sentences can provide the support and interactions, interventions that women need to address whatever the core issue is of the offending. Working, you know, with women's centres, they can provide a holistic approach with um, helping women to access domestic abuse support, helping women to access work, helping women to access um, counselling if they need it. You know, all those things that actually go towards the root cause of what the offending, um, you know, why the offending has taken place. Because we can all pretend that you get that in prison, but in reality, you just don't. In reality, it is actually only those who are serving long sentences you know, those who are serving IPPs, those who are serving life sentences, those who have to go before the parole board to have their release directed, who get access to the courses that they need to sort of actually address any risk-related behaviours or any trauma, particularly for women, it is trauma-related work that needs to, you know, needs to be taking place. But it's often only those people who can access it and often only close to when they're coming up for their parole eligibility because, the courses are so oversubscribed, they can't provide them for everybody and they therefore have to essentially prioritise who is going to have them, be able to attend. And so that is for those who won't be released from prison unless they can prove to a parole board that their risk has been reduced. Women who are in prison for six months, 12 months, whatever it might be, do not have access to those types of courses and support. And I also think that those, um, you know, I'm sure you know this and we know because you're so well um, experienced in this area, but the number of women who have mental health issues in prison is astonishing. And I really think that the public believe that if you go to prison, you get mental health support, you get the care and treatment that you require. And that's just not true. So what you're actually doing is you're sending somebody to prison and it is compounding their their mental illness. You know, there's a deterioration in their mental well-being. And then it's not actually being addressed. And then and it puts pressure on there. all the other services when they come out, like the sort of mental health services in the community that are oversubscribed. And actually, it's therefore, our taxpayers' money is being used to invest in a broken system that's making people worse. Yeah, exactly. And all the time, you're not only making it worse for everybody and that person, but you're making it worse for the children who are the innocent bystanders, bystanders even, of the system. One thing I wanted to pick up on, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when a child is removed from its mother or family in the family court, there's a package of support that goes with that child. Am I correct? And then in the criminal court, if they're removed from a parent, there is no money that would potentially go to the grandmother or grandfather if they decided to take on. So like in the case of that woman with the three children, the grandmother took them on. Does any financial support go with those children to help that grandmother suddenly take on three children? No. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter how it comes about. It is whether the agreement is informal or whether there's a court order in place. Right. So in that situation, maternal grandmother has taken the children on it's an informal agreement. Children's services are happy with it. There's therefore no children's services involvement anymore because there's no risk to the kids. So uh, maternal grandmother is then essentially left to her own devices. Um, she could access child benefit for the children, 
But essentially, that's it. And if you're talking about a child who might only be going to a family member for quite a short period of time because of the short length of the custodial sentence, by the time you've tried to transfer child benefit and all that sort of stuff, mum's already come out. So it, it, it's not really a realistic, um, you know, sort of uh, support um, financially for, for those caring for children. If children are separated from mum and there is a care order in place, then obviously the people who are caring for the child will have some support through children's services. It depends what type of order in place is in place on who the child is placed with. So often with a care order, a child is placed with a foster family and obviously foster foster parents are provided with financial support. Sometimes this can be the result of care proceedings or even private family law proceedings. The court might make what's called a special guardianship order, which is an order for a child to live with a certain person for the rest of their childhood. And that person is often a family member, can be a friend, but it's normally a family member, often a a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or something like that. And there are potentially some services that children services can offer if you are a guardian under an SGA. But ultimately, if there's no children's services involvement, you're kind of left to your own, essentially. Right. So particularly if a woman was scared to tell the judge or anyone in the court that she had children because she's scared of the social services and their intervention, then... um, I could see how that's often the case. And then, of course, no support goes with those children because they're trying to keep it under the radar. Exactly. I mean, the thing with it, though, is that women are too scared to tell the court that they've got kids. But children's services will always find out. Mm. So it doesn't actually prevent their intervention at all. And children's services are are massively, massively under pressure. We all know that. That's why we see such awful failings on on their part. So if child is um, going to live with a family member and children's services deem that as suitable, they'll say, brilliant, wonderful, have kids, get on with it. They will, they will then remove themselves. They don't want to be, um, they don't have the resources to be involved in cases that they don't need to be involved in. So it may be that, you know, women actually don't have something to fear in their particular circumstances and actually telling the court that they do have kids is going to go in their favour. But I think that is obviously something, again, that that needs to be looked at in relation to how they're represented and how the courts address the issue. Well, there's quite a lot to unpick there, isn't there? Um, but It's a minefield. <laughs> it's a minefield, but... Thank God that there's so many third sector organisations around like Prison Advice Service, Birth Companions I was hearing about earlier, because the work that the third sector does inside the prisons to try and make prisons actually better places that function slightly better is is incredible. So thank you so much for your time. That's been really fascinating. And we'll make sure that the details of Prison Advice Service are put in the footnotes of the podcast. Wonderful. Thanks for having me on, Edwina. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.